Burns B. from Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, I hope you like him. You know, my watch up like that, some of the fellas always scream, well, you put it down there, but you never pay any attention to it. <laughs> and they're probably right. My name is Burns Gray. I'm an alcoholic. Appreciate very much being here. As Bowie said, he loves to come to places where they talk like he does and say, y'all. Now, I, it's a little more fundamental even than that. For me, I like to come to places where when we say the Lord's Prayer, I finish at the same time everybody else does. <laughs> I've got some real good friends that are Catholic, and and uh, we have a we have a men's meeting on Tuesday night and on Thursday night that I go to, and and uh, some of these men are really very near and dear to me. And we end up we say the Lord's prayer, and I told them one night that every one of them finished first, second, eighth, twelfth, and fifteenth out of twenty in saying the Lord's prayer. They got through quicker than anybody else. I've never seen anything like Catholics saying the Lord's prayer. They just get through just like that. You, ever, you know. No, no problem with that, except I just run like hell and never can finish sports, A.B. And when I come down to Texas, uh, when we say the Lord's Prayer, I, uh, I, I finish the same time y'all did, so I feel real comfortable being here. I mean, I mean a lot to y'all. I mean the hell a lot to me for the same reason. Uh, the, uh, I really like the flowers. <laughs> for some reason, I really like the flowers. I sit there, you know, as you get older and, and your attention span fails and, uh, you start looking for little things to focus on, you know. Uh, I, I do think it's kind of, I, I, Frank, I never would say to a group like this that it's yellow and pink and a little bit wavy because I saw this table over here go hysterical about that. So uh, I want to let your mind wander over that for a while. Uh, never did promise you'd be spiritual. I just said it'd be probably on time. Uh, I love to watch the, the, look at the flowers of you. I appreciate being here. I'm, uh, the privilege of being here. Listen, with this bunch of speakers, it's been really outstanding. Uh, each person has belched up a lot of his own pain. The common denominator, of course, has been the pain. And the common denominator has been the joy and the relief uh, from daily living. Uh, starting with uh, having to quit drinking and then going on through the death of a child, the absolute fear and projection of death of a child and the other things that we've heard that are all part of living. Uh, is this thing cutting in and out on me? <laughs> it's happening again. Oh, Lord. <laughs> I prayed that it wouldn't happen. God promised me. He didn't promise me anything. Anyway. Fortunately, I don't have as much gas as I usually have, so this thing's going to happen. I said, no, you know, this is one of those crazy mornings where I was sitting over there with Bo and Shirley and uh, Marty, and, and Shirley turned around and wanted Marty's name, and he said, uh, yes, I will, I will write it down for you. I said, Shirley, goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. And uh, I thought that was cute, and I said, I personally prefer mercy. You know, I've always gone for dark-headed women, but I don't know why they're often. <laughs> Back to spirituality. Okay, this is a Sunday morning talk. Uh, <laughs> The thing I found out about Sunday morning speakers is they always leave town later than anybody else. That's another thing I was going to reflect on. Today I'm going to talk about uh, the demons that dance on my head. I'm going to talk about the joy and, 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 and the love that dance in my heart. I do not intend to preach or teach in any of my talks. I end up doing both. 
and I apologize for neither. <laughs> because if there hadn't been teachers and preachers in my life, I wouldn't be alive today. The preaching and the teaching, if I stay honest with what you've asked me to talk about, will be my experience, and I think that's generally true. It will happen today. Some of it's very powerful and very painful for me. Some of it's a lot of joy. I know there's nobody else in the room who needs to hear what I'm going to say. Certainly I do, but i got to believe that some people in this room need to hear what I have to say. It's not just that newcomer that comes in whom I really feel a great deal of empathy and a great deal of love for, but it's that person that we sometimes forget with 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, and 30 years of sobriety that we think walk on water. And if they fall prey to our own uh, demands and they begin to believe that same delusion, they're just as vulnerable as that newcomer. In many instances, even more vulnerable because of the delusion of the length of sobriety. The longer I've stayed sober, the fascinating thing about it is I fight the demons, they just dress up different. I'm going to talk about how they may come dressed. I've become intrigued recently uh, about the miracle of recovery because there's no question that to get before I came to where I am can't be done. And the stories that I've listened to pretty much say the same type thing. To get to where they came, started, and to where they are can't be done. And I found that no longer does the miracle of recovery take on kind of an aura of, of, of invincibility. There's a great mystery to AA. There's no magic. People who talk about AA being magic don't understand it. AA is not a matter of slight hand, sleight of hand and smoke and mirrors. There's a great mystery because something happens that is not possible. And to look at this miracle of recovery, I became intrigued with it some time ago, but I was in a, a, talking at somewhere. Uh, I've gotten where, you know, things all run together. Uh, and as I've gotten older, some, my memory really has slipped. Part of it may have been a severe heart attack I had two and a half years ago and some of the stuff I went through then. And part of it is just because I'm older. So a lot of things run together, and I don't remember so much about page numbers, nor do I remember even names. I remember concepts and feelings. And I was talking to, uh, at a conference with Peggy M. from uh, from uh, Nebraska, and Peggy was telling a story about when she first came into recovery. Uh, it was in the winter, and uh, and she was so sick. And many of us who've been through that remember very well, I certainly remember very well being so sick and so disjointed in that early early part of recovery, I mean physically. And she said there was they lived on a farm and there were these little family of foxes that would come up to see them each day and she would go out and put out food for the foxes and they would eat the food and she would go in. And said in the spring she was feeling much better, but she continued putting food out and the foxes would come and eat the food. Then one day she went out and put the food down and the foxes came to eat the food and as she turned to go inside, she felt a presence behind her, and she turned to look behind her, and there was this fox sitting about five feet from her with both of its forepaws, or forelegs, sitting out in the front, its back leg punched up under it, looking right straight at her. And she said as she looked in this fox's face, what she saw in the eyes of that fox was, Thank you, Peggy, for saving my young ones in the winter. Now, I've hunted all my life. 
interestingly enough, in the last couple of years, it doesn't seem to be as much fun. I find that interesting. But in any event, I've hunted all my life. And I've seen many dogs and wild animals sit with their feet out in front of them and their legs hunched up behind, sitting very close to watching. It's a very common thing for wild animals to do. And in most instances, I'm completely convinced that the reason they're doing it is they're watching to see if you're going to hurt them. What she saw looking at that same natural stance was the look in that fox's eyes that said, Thank you, Peggy, for saving my little one. And I came to know that the miracle of recovery is not a change in what I see. What has changed is how I see it. See these concepts up here? Faith, hope, and love. Add to it acceptance, serenity, happiness, joy, freedom. What I saw in these things when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous were gold, aspirations, things to be attained. I've been around since December the 1st, 1977, and in this process of the miracle, what I've come to know and how I see it today is they are byproducts of a process. They are lousy goals. They are wonderful byproducts of a process. And what we don't spend a lot of time talking about anymore uh, is the process. You let anybody in this room set out to attain these things just on the basis of their own willpower and as a goal, I can promise you, you're in for a rough ride and a lot of pain. You follow the rules and the tools and the process and they always happen. It's not a change in what I see. I really want these things and frankly today I have most of them. So what I see has not changed. What has changed is how I see it. I was around when when uh, when Bo and Shirley's boy got killed. And I've known Bo and Shirley ever since that time, I guess. And I remember they were on the circuit and I'd hear them talk periodically and they really weren't able to string together a sentence, much less a paragraph. And it was a real joy to listen to them this time on this trip talk about that event. What they saw has not changed their boy died. What has changed is how they see it. Instead of it being a curse, it has been an opportunity and a blessing. I don't know much about virgin births, and I don't know much about uh, crucifixions, and I know even less about resurrections. Now, I choose to believe that all those things happen. And they are truly miracles, and I'm really, I'm really very devoutly committed to those miracles. But let me tell you what I do know. I know alcoholism. For the last, I'm a doctor, and for the last 15 years of my life, I've studied our disease as intensely and as dramatically as anybody in this country. I'm one of the top five speakers in the world in, in, in lecturing on alcoholism to doctors and groups like that. I know about alcoholism because I've lived it. I'm 60 years old, and I've lived it from the minute I hit the delivery room floor. And what I know about alcoholism is something happened in May of 1935 that can't happen. It ain't possible. Here's a drunk in a little old hotel in Akron 
He's gone up there to pull off a deal that's as shaky and shady as anything it's ever done. He's lying through his teeth. He's trying to cheat. He's trying to get back the big lick so he can come back and be the big wheel again. The deal is falls through. They damn near sue him. He can't pay to get out of the hotel. And he's about five months sober, and he doesn't have a sponsor. He doesn't have a meeting to call. He doesn't have a central office. He hasn't got any way in the world to deal with the thing that he knows will stop the pain, the shame, and the confusion. And he's walking up that hotel hall to decide what he's going to do, and he sees the bar, and he doesn't drink. Take that to your computer and put it in there and see what's going to happen. <laughs> he turns to the right and looks up the name of a drunk. And because of that great miracle that happened, of course, in 1935, we're all here today. See, I know that miracle. I know that miracle. What I have uh, become more deeply committed to in the past couple of three years is the preservation of the simplicity and the integrity of that miracle. Because, see, after four years, what Wilson recognized and what that first one had recognized is they were carrying a tale by word of mouth. And it was already becoming diluted. Even in a hundred people, they were screwing up the story. You know, now we got two or three million, and we wonder why we hear so many different stories. So they decided to sit down and record the process. And isn't it amazing how many of us forget that there's a that there's a re, there's a set of directions, you know? But I've become absolutely committed. AA is not being threatened from the outside. I love it when somebody writes in Newsweek or on the front of the, of the Wall Street Journal an article on this is not a genetic disease, it's not a disease at all, it's a act of will. And every one of us will blow out of the woodwork and we're going to write a hate letter, get on the plane, castrate the son of a bitch who wrote it, and we're going to set the world right. <laughs> they don't represent us one iota of a threat to us. The threat to us is the person who's decided that he doesn't have to live by the rules. I'm talking about me. Sitting in a meeting not too long ago, and a newcomer in a raised hand said, I've got a resentment. How do y'all deal with resentment? Two or three people talked about this one guy, been sober about 14 years, said, Well, when I have a resentment, there's an oak tree out in my backyard. And I'll go out there and I run around that oak tree, and I run around it, and I run around it, and I run around it, and I just get so tired, I fall down. And he said, I feel so much better, I go in, I go to bed. And they said, Well, what's that the next morning? Oh, it's still there, and I go out there and I run around that oak tree, and I run around that oak tree. And I thought, Hell, this man's going to kill himself out there in that backyard, running around that damn oak tree. (laughs) And a week later, I'm in a meeting, and somebody talking about a resentment, and this guy said, Well, I'll tell you what my therapist told me to do. That I have to sit down and write a letter letting this sucker know everything he's done to me and how much I hate his guts and everything. And then when I finish, I seal it and mail it to him. <laughs> how do you feel like that? I feel better. And the newcomer said, I know what this program is. It's Oak Tree Hate Mails Anonymous. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> When I came in Alcoholics Anonymous in 1977 in Louisville, Kentucky, at that point in time, it's what I call the dark ages of AA in Louisville. I came in and I was dedicated to staying sober. I'd had all that fun I could tolerate. I, and I sure as hell didn't like me. And I was, I was just anything that would work. 
And I got in there and asked, and they said, don't drink, go to meetings, get a sponsor, tell him everything that's wrong with you, that'll clean it up, and then go save a drunk. And I heard that message because I was willing to follow directions just like that. And I mean, I got out there and I told my sponsor everything. He'd tell me exactly what to do and then I'd do it. And then I'd go save a drunk. I became a lethal weapon for God. I was everywhere, you know. They said, here he comes. If you haven't had a drink or beer, have one because he's going to put you in a treatment center anyway. Here he comes. <laughs> and I lived nine years that way on three steps. No, three and the third steps. The first three steps came easy. Whiskey with me. I was powerless took a power greater than me and I was willing to turn my life and my will over. He was my sponsor. And then I ran all over Louisville saving drunks. Two things kept me sober in that first nine years. One was alcohol whipped me. Alcohol whipped my butt. Left me nothing. And I'll tell you what was even worse about being powerless over alcohol. Me. It wasn't that I couldn't quit drinking. It was that it couldn't. I couldn't make it work. It reached the point where it would stop the diarrhea and it would stop the sweating but it wouldn't stop the noise. And I'd get enough relief in my guts, enough relief from my bowels, and enough relief like that that I could at least keep drinking a quart of whiskey a night. So alcohol whipped me. The other thing that... So I didn't even think about going back to drinking because the damn stuff didn't work. The other thing that kept me sober was working with newcomers. I mean, I was always somewhere working with a newcomer. When I was a newcomer, I was working with newcomers. I mean, most of the stuff they heard from me was, was a bunch of bull, but they, but they heard, they touched, they felt, and I was there, and we were together like that. But after nine years in the program, a lot of these newcomers I've been working with, I found were going off and leaving me. Well, <laughs> everybody leaving me because I was goofy. With a three and a third step program in this program, you're goofy. And I was goofy. Finally, through a series of circumstances that were totally self-centered, I was driven to my knees. And it was real, real interesting circumstances. Nine years in the program. All alcoholics take hostages. We all take hostages. It may not look that way, but that's just what it is. And my number one hostage was my wife. I was the most wonderful, benevolent dictator that ever lived. And I mean, all this woman had to do to have life eternal was just take what I gave her. All she had to do was give it right back to me. I put her on my hip and we went to the Bahamas and we went here and we went there and we did that. We did this. And I mean, it was wonderful. We prayed together. We, When I wanted to pray, we had sex together. Sometimes I was alone, but most of the time it was We had sex together. It was always on my terms. I had her right here on my hip. And you know, at nine years in this program, she came up to me and she said, Burns, I've never loved you more, but I want to see for the night. She said, I want to go to my own meeting. But we always went to the meetings I wanted to go to. She said, I want to go to my own meetings. I want to go back to school. And I want to go into therapy. Well, see, what I heard, what I said was, that's okay, honey, but what I heard was, you're leaving me. All the way back from my mother, my relationship with women has been real well defined. I didn't know this until I did the number of fourth and fifth steps and then went into some therapy. But my job description for all women in my life was take care of me and make me feel special. Real simple. Not a hard job description. But you sure as hell had to do it. Or you were history and there was another brought in. 
oh, it was a lot of subtle crap that went on before that happened. You know, I leaked people off till they threw me out, and then I blamed it on them and got me another one. But I ended up getting another one. I always did. Well, no different this time. Nine years in the program with three and a third step program. Three and a third step, what am I going to do? I'm going to go do the only thing I know how to do. Change women. But I've got nine years in the program, so I know you can't lie, so it's going to be a lot more subtle, right? <laughs> a lot more subtle. So I, you know, in our setting, we had seven doctors, and there was a nurse that always worked with each one of the doctors. This nurse had worked with me for two and a half years. Perfectly normal relationship, but as soon as Casey was going to go back to school, go to her own meeting, Kathy began to look like an entirely different person. Not overnight, but one day at a time, it evolved into this and this, and shared about her boys that were growing up, and her husband that she had divorced some years before, and one thing led to another, and I was remember turning the key in the Holiday Inn, uh, room in the Holiday Inn, and started crying. I said, I don't want to get drunk. But I knew I was screwed up. My heart said, you're deeply in love with this new woman. And my head says, you're crazy as a goat. That's the first time I knew that feelings are always to be acknowledged. They're never to be trusted in isolation. You trust a feeling in isolation, you've got about a 50-50 chance that you're delusional. If you're an alcoholic of my type, now maybe you're not. Or maybe you're not an alcoholic and you're just a genius. Who knows? Hell, I don't know what it is. <laughs> but through a series of circumstances that were brought on by total self-centeredness. When the students read it, the teacher will always arrive in this program. And a little pigeon of mine came up with uh, eight tapes. Handed me. He said, would you listen to these and see if they're any good? And they were Joe and Charlie's tapes of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And as I listened to those tapes, I realized the program I didn't have, and I cried all the way through them, and my life changed. The last uh, ten years of my life uh, have been a twist, have been a twist, been a twelve-step program. And I got to tell you, the difference in a twelve-step program and a three and a third-step program is the difference in daylight and dark. I'll have little patients come up to me and say. Uh, why do I feel so miserable? Because you're sitting on your ass, you're not doing your work. That's why you feel miserable. Well, maybe I have a psychiatric problem. Maybe you do. What are you going to do about it? Work the steps first, and then we'll see what we got. It's amazing. Most of them don't turn out to have psychiatric problems. They're just self-centered little assholes like me. <laughs> and... Uh, But my life changed. As I became a student of this book and I and I began to read this book, I became fascinated by the profundity of it. I became absolutely fascinated by the with the profundity of this of this book. Bill Wilson called it the common property of all mankind. He said we don't have anything unique. And quite frankly, he doesn't have anything unique. Except for one thing, with the exception of the Washingtonian movement, it's the only movement that ever that one alcoholic would talk to another alcoholic one-on-one and carry this message. The Washingtonian movement screwed up the rest of our principles and so they died. Uh, and uh, as I read this book, I became fascinated by what Wilson said our problem is. See, I always thought my problem was alcohol and drugs. Wilson said, no, your problem is your mind. The way you think 
fact, even in this book, it says alcohol is only a symptom and the bottle is only a symptom. Alcohol is only a symbol and the bottle is only a symptom. Or vice versa, you get the point. <laughs> in any event, I thought, wait a minute, he's right. Alcohol caused me problems, but it wasn't my problem. It's my thinking. And he called it, fascinating enough, a peculiar mental twist. And I think that's wonderful because any drunk who got the drink the way that I drank and got into the trouble I got into, whoever goes back to drinking, has to have a peculiar mental twist. Or just be crazy as hell, you know? Or just be stupid. And you run IQs on us, we're not stupid. You run neuropsych profiles on us, we're not crazy. But we've got this peculiar mental twist. The way I'm at, when I came in, they said, you stop the drinking and don't deal with the thinking, you go back to the drinking. And it's the way my mind works. And he never really wrote down in any in intricate detail what the peculiar mental twist was. And I became fascinated by that. And as the years have evolved, they've become, it's become much simpler to me. And the component, and if, if you ever wondered What's this peculiar mental twist? If you've never heard of the peculiar mental twist, for goodness sakes, read it. Because it's the thing that leads every one of us back to relapse. There's a whole industry that has grown out of the fact that we haven't read this book. It's called relapse prevention. It's called long-term treatment. You have no problem with relapse prevention or long-term treatment, but it's usually for most people who don't take the time to have a sponsor and read the book. And the first part of the peculiar mental twist is being bigger than the rules. Let me tell you a joke. I heard this in Texas, so y'all really appreciate this joke. I heard it down in Beaumont. Y'all remember uh, uh, Damien? Damien, any of y'all know Damien's down in Beaumont? Damien's about older than God. He's about, he's been about 90 years old, been sober about 45, 50 years. And uh, he told a story that's constant. I was speaking at in Beaumont. Damien always talks like he's got a flat brainwave. But if you listen to Damien, he's really, really funny. He tells this wonderful story about the traveling salesman traveling all over East Texas. And he was what we call in Mayfield, bad to drink. And he would travel from town to town to town. And each time he was going to a town, he would get drunk. And he'd stay a week in that motel. And he'd go out every night and get drunk. And he'd come back and they'd set him up when he'd come back to keep his business in this, in this way to set him up. Finally, one of these nights, he just went home. And he was beat. He went into the 28-day treatment center, whatever he did. But he got sober and got in AA. He comes back to start running his circuit again, he checks into the motel, goes out that night to an AAB, and he thinks he's going out to get drunk. So he comes back in, they set him up like they normally do, he switches on the light, when he walks in, sure enough, beside the bed, there's a quart of whiskey and a tub of ice. And on the foot of the bed are two beautiful women. And he looks at that scene, and he said, well, started going to AA, and I asked them what I had to do to stay sober and be happy, and they said, you got to quit drinking and change everything you're doing. He said, so I can't drink that whiskey. And one of you girls is going to have to leave. <laughs> and there's not a drunk in this room that ain't relate to that, you know? Oh, let me, let me tell you a story. A month ago, they asked me to talk in Nova Scotia. So I'm on the plane, and first of all, there's a lot of turmoil going on in my life about this time, and I frankly didn't want to take that long a trip. And I get on the plane, and I'm going up there, and I've had to pray to get my attitude right to, to get on the plane and go, and the plane takes off, and we're going. We get to Detroit. 
Well, they land the plane, and uh, we have to go to another plane, and I go in there, and we get on the plane, we're sitting there, and the gal comes on, she said, we are having, oh, the pilot comes and says, we're experiencing mechanical difficulties, we're not sure we can get this fixed, so we're going to ask you all to deplane, and we'll see what we need to do. So we all get out, and we're all around this thing waiting, and he said, uh, the plane will not be able to fly. And we're not going to be able to get a new piece of equipment, so we'll put y'all up for the night. Oh, we'll put y'all up for the night. Well, about this time, a whole entourage of people come up from the other side of God knows where and says, this is where we're supposed to be, we go to Buffalo. And they've already changed the thing on the heading from Nova Scotia to Buffalo. I said, well, you, you know, I don't know what the deal is, but you're not going to be able to go on that plane because it's broken, it won't fly. So we sat there about 30 minutes and finally the thing says, with everyone who's going to Buffalo, please line up to the right while the people who are going to be here overnight are getting their ticket and get everything worked out for tomorrow we're to the left. These people go over there, they get their ticket, and they walk through, get on that same plane, the sucker backs up and takes off. And I'm sitting there thinking, I need to talk to the president of this outfit because this is I mean, I don't want to talk to the stewardess. I don't want to talk to the ticket man. I want to talk to the big cheese, you know. So I decided that this isn't going to work, so I go get on the phone and I call my sponsor. I said, Jim, I just need to talk, uh, uh, I just need to talk to you for a minute. He said, and then I told him the story. He said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, just talking to you and calm down. I'm just going to go ahead and get, you know, get my room and whatnot. And he said, okay, that makes sense. So I'm sitting there and, and, uh, and I go over and I get my, it takes three hours to get this voucher to check in. I said, can I just stay in the hotel here in the, in the airport? No, we can't let you stay there. And I said, okay. So they get the voucher after three hours. We all pile in like, uh, you know, cubby or whatever it is. And we go over to check into this second rate motel. And I'm sitting there thinking, wait a minute. I've worked all my life to have at least $50 more than the, the difference in these rooms. So I call on and I said, I want to go back to that thing and I'll pay the difference. So they drive, drive me back over. And when I go up to the hotel desk, uh, I said, I've got a voucher here. I'm sure it's not in account. He said, oh, yeah, we'll accept that. You can go ahead and check in here. So I checked in, and I'm going upstairs, and it's about, and I called my wife, because she's going to a retreat at Notre Dame, and I told her where I'm going to be, and not to worry, because I won't be calling her where I'm going to be, and and she said, oh, thanks, honey, I appreciate that. So I go in, and I get down beside the bed, and I said, God, thank you for the dignity of helping me work through this. Thank you for being with you, for with me. Thank you for calling my sponsor. Please forgive these incompetent SOBs who are running this airline right now. Please. And I, but, I mean, I'm really doing a good job. And I go down, it's about 10 o'clock at this time, and I go into the restaurant. And there's nobody there but just me. And I sit down, and I'm the last person they're going to serve, and this sweet waitress comes over, and real pretty girl, and we're talking, and and uh, turns out that she was born and raised in East Tennessee. The reason that's important because that's where my wife was born and raised. She said, my daddy's back down there. My mother died. And I said, well, when did she die? About a month or two ago. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. And I said, and she said, daddy's really having a hard time. And he's moved down there. And, and I get to go down and see him periodically. And so we talk. Finally, when I finish eating, she serves my dessert. She comes over and sits down at the table. And we talk for about another 30 minutes. And I, this is the person who, an hour before, saying, God, thank you. And I'm sitting looking at her right now, and I said, I wonder if I'd get her in bed with me if I took her upstairs right now. You know? And I go, wow! You know? And I go upstairs and see that alcoholism. That's the peculiar mental twist. That's what sits behind my eyes that tells me that I'm bigger than the rules. That's part of my thinking. 
I've been privileged to work with thousands of alcoholics from street people where I'm the addictionist for a 200-men homeless shelter. We sleep 100 men a night, and we got uh, 200 men a night, we got 100, 100 in a year-long program of recovery. I'm the chairman of the Impaired Physicians Committee for the state of Kentucky. I've worked with thousands of physicians and thousands of, of alcoholics in between. I've seen alcoholics, we think like that. Bigger than the rule. Driving down the road, 65 mile an hour speed zone. I'm going 95 because I'm Burns Brady. Handicapped parking area. I'm only going to be here five minutes. Park in that thing. I can park there because I'm only going to be here five minutes. I don't believe in income tax evasion. I believe in income tax avoidance. <laughs> what they don't know won't hurt them. You screw them before they screw you, you know. Peculiar mental is bigger than the rule. Three and a third step program, not a 12 step program. Plan my life for 50 years, not today. About six months ago, I had periods of cyclical depression. So did Bill Wilson. Amazingly enough, for both Bill Wilson and Burns Brady, we seem to have worse cyclical depression when we're not working the program. <laughs> If you study Bill Wilson, yes, he had cyclical depression. He got real depressed when he didn't work the program. So I suppose you're going to say Bill Wilson didn't work the program. What was he got? He was a messenger, and I devoutly love the man and think just like him. And when I don't work my program, I have these huge cyclical depressions. There's not more than, there's been at least five psychiatrists and little one put people wanting to put me on antidepressants for five years. My choice has been, if I work the program, I don't seem to get depressed. But when I don't, I get, and I get almost like a red flag, I get, I just pull myself down in a bunker and nobody comes close to me. Not because it used to be that way, because I thought they would tell me I was wrong. Now I don't want to hurt them. Because nothing is sacred. And I got in this program because I got tired of hurting people. Usually lasts about two or three days. Nobody can talk to me. This Saturday morning, about six months ago, Casey came over and sat by the bed and looked at me and she said, I love you so much, I need to talk with you. And I looked at her and didn't say anything. She said, Burns, I need to tell you that you've gotten bigger than the program. And I thought, damn, how could she say that? If you followed me each day, I guarantee you it's a spiritual journey that you'd love every minute of it. I didn't say a word. She said, you haven't called your sponsor in six months. If a shoe fits, wear it. You haven't called your sponsor in six months. She left and I knelt down beside the bed and prayed and realized I hadn't, I've had three sponsors. First one for the first nine years and the second one for the second nine years and one for six months. And I got down to my knees and prayed why I hadn't called my sponsor. And it was time to change sponsors. And I called Jack, my, my sponsor then, and told him what I was going to do. I told him I'd like to meet with him and told him what I was going to do. And he said, I understand that. And I got another sponsor meeting. And I meet with him every Tuesday. And we talk every Tuesday. Have breakfast. We go to three meetings a week together. But we talk every Tuesday, just the two of us. Peculiar mental twist, bigger than the rules. The second part of the peculiar mental twist for me is victimization. I've played it ever since I started. Oh, yeah, I'm an alcoholic because I was born poor. 
I had to caddy at the country club rather than to belong to the country club. I remember walking down the fairway and see those little snot-nosed rich boys diving in the pool thinking, those little pranks. I hated them. I hated their father. I hated my mother because I was poor. If I hadn't been born poor, I wouldn't be an alcoholic. Oh, I went to college, but I had to work my way through college. Mother and daddy couldn't afford me a car, so I had, I even married that rich witch that was my first wife. If, she had had, if I'd had money, I wouldn't have married her. If I hadn't married her, I wouldn't have had those two snot-nosed kids. If the medical profession had any concept of my brilliance, they wouldn't have me on report after the damn time, you know. The victimization goes on and on. If I didn't have this doctor right now who's trying to feed our program, I wouldn't be tired up at 12 o'clock at night calling him telling the goodness together, you know. All of them making me miserable. Victimization. Wilson knew we wouldn't understand victimization, so he called it resentment. <laughs> he knew we wouldn't understand being bigger than a rule, so he called it self-centeredness. Final part of the peculiar mental twist is what I call the square peg round hole bigger hammer syndrome. If the square peg won't fit in the bigger in, in, in the round hole, then just get a hammer and beat hell out of it till it fits. <laughs> And every drunk I've ever known lives every day of his life with the square pig, round hole, bigger hammer syndrome mentality. Now, interestingly enough, it came out of the second half of the first step, doesn't it? The manageability of life. Who's going to manage my life? Who's going to be my CEO? And the reason it's the absolute death clutch with the manageability of life is the fear that it won't turn out the way I want it to turn out. I'm going to lose something I've got or not get something I want. That's not original. That's out of 12 and 20. So I squeeze it and I squeeze it and I squeeze it and I squeeze it because I get so sick that if whiskey worked for me, I don't have one moment's doubt that I'd take a drink of it. But instead of drinking whiskey, I see that beautiful black-headed gal walking down the street. Or I see that Mercedes car sitting over in the showroom. Or I see that $1,000 set suit of clothes. Can't afford any of those. But they're a short-term cure, aren't they? The basis of the, the basis of Vic, the basis of square peg round hole bigger hammer syndrome is fear. The only resolution for these fear than the rules, victimization, fear, resentment, and control is spirituality. Spirituality is not vague to me anymore. Three corners of a beautiful triangle: sponsor, meetings, victim. Sponsor, newcomer. You ever heard this? Someone with 20 years of recovery who's goofy in hell right now? Sponsor, meeting, big book. When I'm not using all three of those on a daily basis, I get crazy. That's when the peculiar mental twist gets me. I've had three sponsors, each of them God-given. 
person was meaner than a goat. I don't mean this to say I was tough. I had a tough ass sponsor. No, he was mean and he was sick and he was vicious and he still is. But God gave him to me and he brought me things no one else could have ever brought me in this program. I wouldn't recommend him to be sponsored to a goat. (laughs) But he was my sponsor and he brought me things nobody could have brought me. And as the years go by and I look back, I become more deeply grateful for that man every day of my life. Second sponsor brought me something that no one else had ever brought me. He taught me love and tolerance. Jack S. is a circuit speaker from Louisville, and Jack is as opinionated as I am, and I watched him be able to get along with people and concepts that I couldn't seem to fathom, and I wanted what he had, and for nine years he led me into being able to do that. And my last sponsor is just a man right now that I love very deeply. And we can sit and talk about a lot of things. Meetings, I found found out a lot of things about meetings. First thing I found out by going to a lot of meetings is this is a perfect program. Composed of an awful lot of goofy people. If you take all the pathology of the world and put it in one program, you can't find any bigger set of pathology in one area than alcoholics anonymous. When I walked in, I couldn't chew gum. And the people I've been blessed to work with can't chew gum. Now, you watch us stick around long enough, not only do we learn how to chew gum, we clean up real good and we're okay, but we're still goofy. When I came in this program, I've got a cutest little old wife and there were people hitting on her from the minute we walked in this program. And I really did, I didn't appreciate that, but I understood it. There were people trying to take me to bed, and I didn't appreciate, I didn't understand that at all. I looked like the wrath of God. Little bitty legs, little bitty arms, big pot belly, acne from the alcohol. There were people borrowing money and didn't mean to borrow, didn't mean to pay it back and they didn't. I really began to get, I didn't know what this program was all about until I began to ask people who want to take me out to have coffee. Why do you want to take me out to have coffee? And they said, because we want to stay sober and we want to help you stay sober. That's who you look for. Don't ask us to walk on water. And our job is to let you know we can't walk on water. But find a winner. Find someone who wants to stay sober and help you stay sober. Found out by going to meetings with them that don't go to meetings, don't hear what happens to them that don't go to meetings. I find it fascinating the people who aren't here listening to me right now. Maybe it's because of their resentment of me, and they better work through that. Maybe it's because they've gotten to the point they don't feel like they need to listen. Maybe it's because they'd rather be at a raffle than talk about recovery. But I find out that by going to meetings, that them that don't go to meetings don't hear what happens to them that don't go to meetings. W. from Dallas one time said when he first came in the program his sponsor would come and grab him take him to the meeting said I'd hide he'd find me I'd hide he'd find me one day he found me or he couldn't find me he said he called me that night he said well Jim you missed it tonight he said what's that he said you didn't hear what you're supposed to hear and he said what was it he said oh, I don't know I heard what I was supposed to hear but you'll never know what you're supposed to hear <laughs> I've never walked out of an AA meeting that I didn't hear what I was supposed to hear and most of the time I heard it Exactly what I want to hear made me feel good. Sometimes I walk out of a meeting and I am so damn mad I could just scream. Why was I supposed to hear that? What's the deal from that, God? And as I walk into the car, I feel his voice say, that's the resentment you're about to get drunk over. You better go home and read out how to deal with it, you know? 
And there is a solution. It says I'll come a day and we'll be unable to bring into our conscious memory with sufficient force the humiliation of a week or a month ago. We are defenseless before the first drink. We literally forget. Medical science says we have the selective ability to forget pain. We can even explain that. I call it God-given. But every time I walk in one of these meetings, I'm gently reminded of every bit of that pain. And you give me a solution. Big book, when I first came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I'd sit down with that book and I'd open it. And I'd say, that's beautiful, folks couldn't remember it. I'd open that book and read it. I think that's beautiful. I thought I couldn't remember it. I come into AAB and I said, I can't remember anything. I said, hell, don't worry about it. None of us can. But how long did that last? About six months, two years. Oh, that's good. And I come in the next time and say, I can't remember anything because I forgot what you told me the night before, you know. I used to lose my car drinking all the time. I lost my car sober for a year. I remember I remember one day I drive my car to work and I car and I go in that car and I come out and get my car. One day I drove my wife's car, got out and went in the office, came back and I couldn't find my car. And I went in, got my partner and I was crying. And I said, somebody stole my car. And he said, well, let's go see you. And I said, Fern, you go Casey's car. And I said, oh, God, that's right. I forgot. <laughs> so my partners assigned me a parking space. And they said, when Burns leaves work, he's going to that parking space. And if he get whatever's in his car, he's going to drive it home. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> all that's humorous, but and, and, and you know it's true, but I'll tell you what, when I came home, this was in 1977, medical science studied us in 1979, they published the post-acute recovery syndrome. Wilson first wrote about it. When he said he couldn't get a job for a year and a half because he's racked with waves of self-pitying resentment. Medical science in 79 said, the alcoholic will lose short-term memory for recent events for six months to two years. Simple problem-solving, stress management, completely distorted for six months to two years. Sleep patterns screwed up for six months. I used to say, I can't sleep. So I said, you never, nobody ever died from lack of sleep. Oh, God, they don't understand, you know. When I was practicing medicine half-time, the drunks in Louisville would come in and see me because they wanted a sleeping pill. And I'd have to tell them, you don't need a sleeping pill, you'll get okay. The post-acute recovery syndrome. I've had people say, well, you can't take a, a, a good fourth step in Alcoholics Anonymous for at least a year because your brain doesn't work. That's bullshit. <laughs> we run that treatment center and we got these guys in a 45-bed non-medical detox. They have taken every drug known to man, drunk more whiskey than most of Kentucky can produce. They come out of that 45 bed non-medical detox, we put them this book in their hand and give them Joe McQueen's Recovery Dynamics and every day for six months they read this book and go to AA meetings. And these people are taking four steps within the first month. I go down there three days a week, most of them can't, still can't remember my name, but they remember the process of the four, they got their four columns down just like little Lord Paul. And like, here's my first column, here's my first column, here's And I'm sitting there thinking, hallelujah, thank God they're going to be free, you know? And we get in the East End and some of these big highfalutin discussion meetings and some of these guys will come out and I'll bring them to so over and they'll be going through this flirty exposition. My God, you can't imagine. It's wonderful. It should be in a book. And one of them will say, oh, that sounds like a resentment to me. Wonder what their fourth column is. What's their fourth column? Oh, God. 
But, but let me tell you, if you're new in this program and you want to get a sponsor, find one that wants this book in your hand, wants you with a legal pad in your in your face with a pen, and you're doing your steps, and you're not waiting a year. That's the preaching and the teaching, but by God, it's the truth. Because we're in the business of saving lives, and that's why I, go, I flew all the way to Adelaide. There are other reasons, but let me tell you, that's enough. I grew up in a little town in Western Kentucky named Mayfield. I grew up in a home where there was no alcohol and there were no drugs. My grandfather died drinking lye water in the Mayfield City Jail. My mother was molested physically, emotionally, and sexually in that home. She was what we know today as an adult child and alcoholic. I'm not going to get into controversy of that, but if you read the family afterward, it says in that first paragraph, in that first page, if you are raised around one of us or you're around one of us, you get goofy, you get neurotic is what he called it. And my mother was goofy. One of the finest, sweetest ladies I've ever known in my life. I miss her every day. She died in 78. One of the neatest people I've known, ravaged by the disease of alcohol. She said no child of hers would ever see alcohol in her home, and we didn't, my brother and I. We went to Sunday school on Sundays, and we went to church on Wednesdays, and it was a good home. It was the 50s when life was great and American graffiti was alive. It was a wonderful time to be alive, and I was in a wonderful home. It was a goofy home, and it was dominated by alcoholism, but we never saw alcohol. But it was a wonderful home because there was love in it. Now, it was, a lot of it was conditional love, and I found out it because Mother was so ravaged, her old ego was wrapped up in her boys. And I found when I was perfect, Mother would talk to me, and when I wasn't perfect, Mother wouldn't. And I became perfect. Jack Armstrong, the all-American boy, and I really was, and I was a good kid. You would want me to be your brother, your best friend, your husband, your son. You'd want me to be. But not before I left to go to college, and I knew I was a good kid. Not before I left to go to college, I was laying in the bed, and I could hear the old freight train down uh, about a mile from Mayfield. I was looking up there at the ceiling, and I thought, God, if I ever have a son, I want him to be just like me. <laughs> be careful what you pray for. You may get <laughs> My boy just gave an AA talk this past weekend at another conference. He's been in AA, he's 29 years old, and he's been in AA 13 years. I got a daughter, 35, who's been in AA 15 years. <clears throat> Alcohol and drugs were no problem for me. And let me say, let me throw this in, now that I'm preaching and teaching again. If anybody believes, and, and this book says we go back through our lives, nothing counts but thoroughness and honesty. If anybody believes the family of origin doesn't have a major influence on the alcoholic thinking, then you just basically don't have any brains between your ears. But the alcoholic uses it as an excuse, you won't have any recovery. And the big issue is not whether or not that issue should be looked at other than just Alcoholics Anonymous. The main thing is timing. You put anybody in adult children's therapy any sooner than three years of recovery, they'll probably get drunk. Because if they don't have a spiritual solution to deal with the feelings and the pain that come wrenched out of that family of origin, they simply will get drunk over the pain. But to ignore it and do it, some circuit speakers say, nobody ever needs any therapy in this program. All you got to know is the first 164 pages. I know them like I know the back of my hand. Live them every day with devout commitment. And I've had to have a plenty of therapy in recovery. Most of it is because of things I did where I didn't know where the bullet was coming from. AA is wonderful about pulling the bullet out and healing it. But by God, there are times when we keep getting shot with the same gun and we don't even know where it's coming from. The alcohol and drugs were no problem for me in high school and college. The, uh, my freshman year in medical school, uh, came in there and I don't know about y'all, but it's always been a motor running. Get that, get me, get me, get me, what you need to say? Where's the ring now? Right now, what's that? Right now, you always been a motor running in me. 
medical science says we have attention deficit disorder. We have severe affective disorders. The book says we're irritable, restless, and discontented, you know. Same damn deal. I was just everywhere. And I tell you, I thought I was going to fly apart. I couldn't study. I couldn't sleep. And then somebody came with a little box of pills to take this little pill that my stepdad stay awake. And I took that amphetamine and my motor stopped just like that. I found four things that will stop my motor. Amphetamine, alcohol, sex, and alcoholics none. AA works better than any others. It just takes a little longer. <laughs> and they, they have put me in jail one time for going to AA meetings, and I've been put in jail for all three of those others. <laughs> I didn't know it was a police woman. I thought $50 was a good price. <laughs> But I only did it once. <laughs> and I only drank one bottle of beer. <laughs> My daddy didn't believe me then and the police didn't either. So that's the way it went. I took that amphetamine. The motor stopped. I found the answer. Two weeks before graduation, my senior, I was kicked out of medical school. And then that mean rage, I hit one of my medicine professors. They took me to the head of the department of psychiatry. Dr. Keller said, what's wrong with you? And I said, Dr. Keller, I take too many pills. He said, do you believe that? And I said, yes, I do. And he said, we can help you. And I said, what are you going to do? We're going to put you in intensive psychiatric therapy. You can figure out why you take that pill, you can quit. You figure out why you take that pill, you can quit. That's called thinking yourself into a way of acting. It works beautifully for cognitive cause and effect living. If you don't get hit by a bus, don't step out in front of it. If you don't want to get rabies, don't play with a dog that's got rabies. If you don't want to get AIDS, keep saying work along. Whatever, all those things are there. It just doesn't work for recovery. It doesn't work for alcoholics. I've told you why, because we got sawdust for brains for about two years. So I went into intensive cognitive therapy, and I mean, I just worked and I worked and I worked and I worked, and I mean, for a year, I learned everything that was learned about me, and I'm not anti-therapy, you've heard that. And I mean, I got everything just absolutely right, and they said, how do you feel? I said, I'm scared. Why are you scared? They're watching you. Why are they watching you? Because I whipped one of them. Well, they should be watching you, and you should be scared, therefore you can own the feeling, the feeling won't have to own you, your home thing. I said, hallelujah, walked into medical school, and in 30 minutes, I strung that on and fed them in again. That was a year and a half later. And I just sat on the steps, and I cried, because I didn't know why. My classmates enabled me for that year. I'd get too hot. I was married, had one small kid. They'd take me home. Sally would put me in bed. One night I ran them all off, barricaded myself in there with a shotgun. They called Daddy, and Daddy came and got me 250 miles, put me in Our Lady of Peace. He's the only person that could have gotten me out of that room that day. I did finally graduate for the next three years. I was in Our Lady of Peace, the mental hospital in Louisville, four times, strapped down, IV fluid, straight back, it's pad itself. My standing diagnosis that I go down and have Adam keep it on record. So Monday night we have a health professional meeting that at least once a month I go down and pull that sucker up because I want to remember what they saw. My standing diagnosis is psychopathological narcissistic sociopathic personality disorder. I've got the serial profile, I've got the profile of a serial killer. That's not treatable. My diagnosis was alcoholism in the drug form. But what they diagnosed is what they saw, and they were dead on the money. What they saw was what they diagnosed. That's the way I acted. Anything was fair game, and I didn't know why. That young kid, that wonderful kid that said, Dear God, let, if I ever have a son, let him be like me, was getting deeper and deeper into this crap in mine. I didn't know why. When the Army in 67, I was put in Leavenworth. They gave me the only key to the pharmacy. That's like putting a fox in a chicken coop. 
after a year, the post commander came in and said, Burns, are you taking that amphetamine? And I said, yeah. And he said, if you don't quit, we're going to put you in Leavenworth. So I quit. Once he explained it to me, I quit, you know. <laughs> well, the deal was I could still quit. See, I could still quit. I could still quit. Came home in 69, got back on it, had a gallbladder attack. A good friend of mine who's a surgeon, another good friend of mine who's the internist, and they're still my doctors came and they said, Burns, it's you, that amphetamine. They took my gallbladder out. Two members of the board last year came. The four of us sat around. They said, Burns, you're a wonderful man. You're a good doctor. Those pills are killing you. And we held hands in that room that day and prayed that I would stop taking amphetamine. And I know that had, had a significant thing to do with my not taking amphetamine because I quit. I quit right then. Now, I today believe in my conscious mind I quit because I was tired of the consequences. And I could still quit. I got tired of being put in my seat. I got tired of seeing the look in my friend's eyes. I got tired of everybody chasing my butt around. I'll never know if I was tired of sober, basically, because uh, I never gave it a chance. Because I started drinking. First four years of my drinking wasn't alcoholic. I might get drunk. I might stay sober. I didn't, I didn't set out to get drunk. I didn't set out to stay sober. You can diagnose an alcoholic. Ask them. Ask them. I say, you got a problem with alcohol? They say, no, I can control my alcohol. Then they got a problem with alcohol. If I told you this morning that I limited myself to four celery sticks for breakfast, you'd say, my God, he's got a celery problem, right? <laughs> for four years I drank that way, in the next three years alcoholic. I might not get drunk as often, I might not, but every minute of every day was thinking alcohol. When's my first drink? When's my first drink? It's going to be a 415 every afternoon. I knew it. Walk out of that office, I never drank my office. The last year my drinking was alcohol was addictive. I drank a quart of whiskey a night. Told myself I wasn't an alcoholic because I never drank in my office. I made hospital rounds. I'd met Casey. My first wife kicked me out in 75 when I labored, left her no recourse. Did a wonderful alcoholic move when she kicked me out. I said, that's your fault. I didn't leave you, bitch. You kicked me out. We were wonderful at that. Womanized for about two years and drove sports cars and tried to be a hairy-legged macho guy because inside was this little boy that was terrified. Now Casey knew this was a special lady and we moved in together because the divorce wasn't final. I knew if I didn't quit drinking, I'd run her off because I'd run everybody else off. I switched from scotch and water, which was my drink of choice, to wine that made me sick. Switched to beer that made me pee. Switched to martinis that wouldn't get me drunk. Scotch and water would always get me drunk. And I always went back. Casey left to go to work that morning between Thanksgiving and December the 1st, 1977, and I sat in this chair looking out at the sun. Because I never went to bed. I had this point, I had reached the point where I believed if I never went to bed, I'd never have to wake up. If I didn't have to wake up, the day wouldn't start. If the day didn't start, it wouldn't be that hell all over again. I'd just stay up until I finally get so tired. I looked out that window. I thought, I can't go on. God, please help me. This gets very personal. You don't have to believe any of this. I said, God, please help me. And I knew immediately what I had to do. And the peace was instant. I walked in, loaded my shotgun, put it in my mouth, because it was time to go. I knew of no other way to stop drinking. I couldn't quit. I was truly powerless. People have asked me if they think that was God's answer, and I know damn well it was, because God brings every one of us to a moment of clarity. Sticky poison. 
จ้าอยู่วงเวลพออยู่วงดาอยู่วงดาดรามาติกเลยบล็อกในบาคยูเฮดเอาอยู่วงดาวิ่งเลเวอร์ดาวน์ออนยูเฮดดูเลกส์ดูซ่าดูสปายเดอร์และสแกนด์ดูคัลเลอร์ดูนัวยูโร่แต่ยูดอนดาร์ทรีทเมนต์เซ็นเตอร์ส์ฮับนาวบิดันดูฟอลด์อินชูเรนซ์ฮับเป็นมิลค์ฟอร์ดไลฟ์ทาร์ยูโน่ว่าดูกรุ๊ปจะกลับมา They're coming home. You know that we're going to have to be there for them. We are. And do you know how many people in this room have ever made a 12-step call? I'd say probably a third of you. We damn well better get ready because they're coming. And we damn well better be ready to tell them the truth. You're going to die. As a doctor, when they came in. All I could say was, I can't help you except to detox you. As a drunk, I can help you. I have a solution. You come with me, and you will know freedom. And we have to be ready. God knew He was going to use me. He educated me. He gave me a background that I would understand everything about alcoholism. And he let me walk this walk for 20 years, for almost 22, and then he took me home. He brought me to you. They sent him because there's nowhere else I would ever want to be except here. And he's given me the beautiful responsibility and the challenge to carry the message that I carry. I did not pull that trigger because I did not want my children to know their daddy died that way. At that moment of complete self-absorption, I thought of something else. I called the phone, asked to be helped. I was sent to an alcohol treatment center in New York, transferred to an alcohol treatment center in Atlanta. Came home after four months, came into AA, and I said, "What do y'all want me to do?" And he said, "You do anything we tell you to do. You're going to ask yourself." Into a way of thinking. The profundity of AA is it works. Each of us has some experience we need to share, and my time is now over. I have a couple of things I need to say to wrap it up. They're not particularly short, but they are very powerful. Two and a half years ago, I had a heart attack. Damn near died. I knew exactly what was happening to me, and I had my wife to rush me to the hospital because I knew minutes counted, minutes counted, because I knew I knew what I needed. And when I got in the emergency room, I knew the doctors running it, and they came in and said, "Burns, you're having an anterior septal heart attack. Who's your who's your cardiologist?" And I remember thinking, "You idiot! Whoever's out in the hall is my cardiologist." <laughs> and and so. Dan McMartin, who's a good friend of mine, one of the top cardiologists in the city, rushed in and said, "Burns, you're in trouble." And I said, "I know it, Dan." He said, "You want me to give you this perfusion? That's the shot they give you to dissolve the clot." And I said, "Please." And so they dissolved my clot. Well, the downside of that is frequently the heart will go into weird arrhythmias, and my heart went into ventricular fibrillation, and I, it stopped beating. And they had to put those shockers on my chest. 
Well, the first time I passed out before they put the shockers on, and when I came to, I said, Dan, what happened? He said, you're fibrillating. I said, am I doing okay? And he said, yeah, you're doing okay. And we were talking about three or four minutes later. I said, Dan, I'm getting ready to faint again. He said, Burns, you're fibrillating again. I can't wait till you go till you pass out, so I've got to hit you awake. He said, the suckers on there and popped me in. That's a spiritual experience. <laughs> I came off of that table like they goose me. And I said, God damn, that hurts, man. And he said, Burns, I know it hurts, but I got to do it. And I said, no, you keep doing it, but that just really hurts, you know. Well, I was real shaky. I mean, really shaky at this time. I mean, physically shaky. Still in the middle of a lot of trouble. They can't catch you for four days because the blood won't clot right. So they had to transfer me up there to the cardiac care unit. And, uh, and I mean, I was really, really fragile. So they started giving me IV Ativan. IV Ativan is Turbo Valium. Well, the minute they started, I said, Dan, I need to call a good friend of mine to come in and take care of me with you. And he said, who's that? And I said, it's Charlie Franklin. He said, Charlie's a psychiatrist. I said, yeah, he's also a specialist in addiction. In addiction. So Charlie came in. I said, Charlie, we're giving me IV Ativan. He said, I'll tell him to stop. And I said, no, you don't. I'm a heart patient, and they give this to anybody who needs it. I deserve what anybody else gets. Let him give me the damn medicine, but it's going to screw me up. And when I get through, your job is to be screw me. And, and he said, fair enough. So for eight days, they gave me IV Ativan. Four days, they cast me. They rotor-rooted out my artery. That complicated. They rotor-rooted it out again. They gave me IV Ativan. I don't care. Please excuse me. You know? yeah. <laughs> Who cares? It's only my life, but boy, hit it again. You know? <laughs> And after eight days, they're going to send me home, and so they're going to give my wife a little packet of these pills, which is, a, which is, a, is okay, to detox me from that Ativan. She's going to give me eight the first day, eight the second, seven, seven, six, six, five, five, and it's, it's going to work. So I go home, in the first two days, it's fine, and then wham, the third day, I go into Floyd withdrawal. We're sitting in the bedroom, and she's right off to me, and I walk over. This didn't plan destiny. I pick up her purse, take it over, but there's about 25 pills, take them all. And I remember her, mo- her mouth moving, saying something. I don't know what she was saying. What she said was, what the hell are you doing? And I remember my mouth moving, but I don't know what I said. I said, this stuff's screwing me up, and when I get it all taken, I won't have to take anymore. <laughs> then I went over and sat down on the foot of the bed, and I remember this. I said, Casey, when this wears off in the morning, I'm going to have to ride a prescription and get some more. And then I started crying. I said, it's got me. She said, it's got you. We called Charlie, and they put me in Our Lady of Peace, and I went through an eight-day bone-rattling detox. Seventeen and a half years of recovery with total commitment to this program, and I was dogging in front of that drug. Take-home message, we deserve anything anybody else gets for treatment. We just have to have a different safety net. I had a vasectomy when I came, in, I came home from, from treatment. Six months in the program, I said, they taught me that I can't do drugs and I can't do that, so I'm going to have this vasectomy under local. So I laid down on the table and I was so proud of myself, and the first time that needle hit my scrotum, I thought that was a real bad decision. Oh, <laughs> oh God, that was the wrong choice, you know? But I, and I had what they call vasovagal collapse because when they pull that premeseric muscle in your scrotum, it causes your blood pressure to drop. That's why when somebody gets hit in the testicles playing ball, we lay around on the ground for about three hours, you know, <laughs> like that. So I go home and I can't stand up without collapsing. I'm peeing in a number 10 freak jar because I can't stand up and go to the bathroom. And after three days of this, I called my sponsor and I said, Jim, come on over here. I want to introduce you to a real hero, me, you know. 
He comes on, he said, what are you talking about? I said, I didn't take any drugs. And told him what happened. He said, you're an idiot. <laughs> yeah. The message is we deserve anybody. We have a sponsor. We have a program to talk about it and take what we need. The message is keep the faith in it. Talk to doctors who are specialists. Have your sponsor in on it. Talk to your support group up. Have them right around you. And it works just fine. Don't sit out there like John Wayne saying, I'll have it in my throat again, you know. <laughs> That's a that's a that's the story I need to share with you because we talk about I'm sure I shared more than you really wanted to hear, but that's perfectly right. <laughs> it's also it's not show and tell time, so for so those of you who care it's not gonna do that. If I want to see my star, why am I get into this anyway? <laughs> the last one the last story I want to tell you the payoff from this program. Uh and I won't say this will happen in your life. Uh, but I know that your life will never be the same and the miracle will occur. Uh, and it has to with my family. My daughter sat straddling my chest 20 years ago full of them. I passed out, uh, drunk. She, uh, had, was full of amphetamine, Darvine Valley, and alcohol, and she was trying to kill me. And the only reason she didn't shoot me was because it was an automatic shotgun and she couldn't figure out how to load it. She came into Alcoholics Anonymous 15 years ago when she got married. The first time she asked me to give her away, and of course I did. And this was the person she was trying to kill. Then she went to a divorce. She came and talked to Daddy. When she remarried, I again gave her away. She's out in Nebraska now living uh, with her new husband, and uh, this young lady has an incredibly good program and has walked through a lot of pain. My son came in the program when he was 16. Uh, he lived with Casey and me from age 11 to 14 and started drinking. Uh, me, we'd catch him and let him live with his mother. Well, she didn't understand or recognize the signs of alcoholism. And that's because of her own codependency, because she saw it with me, she saw it with her daughter, but she could not see it with her son. Uh, she, he, and they've given me permission to tell this. He sold all of her jewelry, and she didn't admit it. He, she sold, he sold all of her silverware. But when she, when he sold her car, she couldn't ignore it anymore. <laughs> so she left him in jail. He came and kicked him out of the house. He came talking to me in case he got living with us. And I spent a year getting prepared for this. A year talking to my sponsor. A year talking with a lot of people. A year getting ready to give that boy the message that, that he needed to hear. He came and said, Daddy, can I live with y'all? And I said, if you get treatment, you can. He said, treatment for what? And I said, your alcoholism. He said, I'm not an alcoholic. I said, if you want to live with me, that's my call. You want to live on the street, that's yours. He said, screw you. I'm trying to walk out. I dropped on my knees and started crying. I said, God, please let this be the right decision. Please, please. I spent a year getting ready to live with the consequences because that boy had to hear the message. But I had to be able to live with the line in the sand. Four months later, he came to said, Daddy, please get me help. He got help. It's been a success story since. And both of those kids say today that the number one most important influence in their life was their daddy drinking and their daddy sober. Final story is my daddy. My mother died in 1978, and I got eight months of sobriety to go sit and talk with my mother, and I loved my mother deeply, and God, I miss that lady. And she hugged me, and she said, Fern, I know you're an alcoholic. I've known you for years, but I'm just glad to that you got the help that your grandfather never was able to get, and that was before he ever started. Mama died. My daddy is a man who's always been very quiet. 
He's always been there for me. I, I got hurt playing football, baseball, basketball. Daddy would be the first one on the field to help me off the field. Daddy was just, but Daddy wouldn't say I love you. Daddy's just quiet. He's always that. I wanted desperately for Daddy to tell me he loved me. He never would say anything. I would try to go down and make my amends to Daddy, and Daddy would say, Burns Mac, I don't want to talk about it. And I'd come back, and my father would say, You can't stuff it down his throat, son. You can't stuff it down his throat. Just be willing. But I wanted desperately to have my daddy tell me it was okay. I've worked with thousands of male alcoholics, and every male I've ever worked with has always wanted some significant male to tell them it's okay. So daddy, I mean, I've done fifth steps with those guys down at that healing place. They could eat this wall. Most of them been in prison. I held their head in my lap and stroked the back of their hair while they screamed, thank you, thank you for telling me it's okay. There'll be a day in this recovery process where you won't need somebody to say it's okay, but it always feels good. And Daddy couldn't do that. About a year after his mother died, Daddy remarried. A beautiful lady was one of God's great gifts for him and for our family. And then Daddy began to lose his mind. Like Alzheimer's, except we call it senile dementia, hardening of the arteries. Finally, Peggy and I, my stepmother, had to put him in a nursing home. And at least twice or three times a month, I don't know how many times, I'd drive down to see Daddy, 250 miles, and I'd pray all the way down, God, take away my pain, please take away my pain, take away my pain. I'd park that sucker and I'd go in, it never worked, I'd get back in the car and I'd drive all the way back, God, take away my pain. This one Sunday I drove up and I parked that car and I sit in that car and I said, God, let me be for my daddy today what you want me to be. I walked down, I didn't call him daddy because that confused him. He was sitting in his wheelchair and I said, Hal, how you doing? He thought I was my, he thought I was his brother, my Uncle Buster. He said, Buster, I'm fine. I'm glad you're here. And I said, Hal, can I shave you? And he said, would you please? I shaved my daddy. I said, would you like me to take you in the dining room, Hal? And he said, Buster, I believe I would. I rolled him in there and my daddy was such a gentleman. And I got his food. He was too weak to feed himself and I fed him. Cody came in. Sit there about where Johnny's sitting right now. And Peggy and I got to talking, and Daddy was sitting over here. Daddy used to, Mother and I used to do that all the time. We loved to talk, and Daddy just loved to sit and watch it. So Peggy and I got to talking, we were talking, Daddy sitting over in his wheelchair. I turned around and said, How would you like to go out on the porch? And he said, Buster, believe I would. So we rolled him out there, and Peggy and I got to talking, we were talking, Daddy was sitting there watching, he raised up in his chair, and he looked me right in the face. He said, Son, today you just like the little boy your mom and I raised. I love you very much. Thanks for coming to see me. Ten seconds later, he didn't know who I was, and he never knew me again. We buried him two years ago. The miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous is not that my daddy recognized me. The miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous is that this self-centered alcoholic says, Dear God, let me be for my daddy what you want me to be. Alcoholics Anonymous is the language of the heart. We feel without touching, we hear without talking, and we love by instinct. I love you very much. I thank you for loving me. Thank you for letting me be with you. For those people that I've seen again, it's good to see you. For those that I've met for the first time, welcome into my life. For those I didn't meet, we will meet as we try this road of happy destiny. 
until that time. God speaks. It works best that way. I love you.